justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. A South Texas man who worked for a juvenile detention facility sold $1.2 million in fajitas over the course of nine years, ordering them from vendors and then billing them to the county. Scott, how could such a thing go on for so long? Well, for once, I was completely uninvolved here. But in retrospect, there were some warning signs. Like what? Like when he gave everyone in the family large quantities of frozen meat for Christmas the last several years. I mean, we're only cousins. I send the guy a Christmas card that plays Feliz Navidad when you open it, and he sends 150 pounds of skirt steak. In retrospect, it was a little disproportionate. So, so that should have been a clue, huh? Possibly. There, there's still 40 pounds of fajita meat left in the freezer from last Christmas. I mean, I like fajitas as much as the next guy, but there are limits, you know? And, and plus, it's hard to get good tortillas in Austin. That is definitely true. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the November 2017 edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, whose day job is Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? I'm looking forward to our capital segment. Um, you know, obviously all opinions are my own, but it's exciting to go over this stuff. That's right. We're in your wheelhouse, aren't we? Yeah. First up, though... Recently, the Louisiana Supreme Court made national headlines by ruling 8-1 to one that a defendant who said, why don't you just give me a lawyer, dog, wasn't really asking for a lawyer. But that's hardly an unusual outcome. The Texas 14th Court of Appeals ruled on October 31st that a defendant who said he wanted to call his sister to ask her to get him a lawyer also did not unambiguously say he wanted a lawyer. In part, that's because the detective kept interrupting him to keep him from being more explicit. And at the end of the day, the ploy worked. The appellate court said the defendant's desire for representation was insufficiently explicit to be binding, even though he told the detective he wanted an attorney because it was, quote, the only option I have. So, Mandy, should these defendants have received a lawyer, or a lawyer dog, or were they just barking up the wrong tree? <laughs> you know, in, in the interest of justice, these defendants should have received a lawyer, but this outcome... Do they have to sit up and beg? <laughs> <laughs> all but according to you know our case law and that's oh that's gosh. the problem that these they should just fetch him a lawyer Ben. they really should <laughs> yes <Woof. laughs> do you have another pun you want to throw before i i'm saving it <laughs> okay so what these cases demonstrate is just how far out of step our case law is with the way people talk to each other. So in the Louisiana case, the newsreels have really focused on the lawyer dog piece of the defendant's statement. But the prosecution's argument was that the defendant's invocation of his rights was conditional. He said, if you think I'm guilty, why don't you just give me a lawyer dog? And so the argument there is that he was basing his invocation of his rights on some sort of subjective position that the investigators had about his guilt. But they did think he was guilty. They arrested him. That doesn't matter, right? They didn't say they so thought the he was guilty. was fulfilled. <laughs> he's One. sitting there being accused, and so he understands what he's being accused of. 
and is saying, give me a lawyer, dog. Sadly, that's not enough. I mean, what the courts are looking for in this context is something that people don't say in a normal encounter, which is a declarative command. I want a lawyer. You need to get me one right now. It's like they want them to have a lawyer to intervene in a lawyerly way before a lawyer is actually in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, they want the defendant to start behaving like a lawyer would in a courtroom, which is not how you're going to behave if you're trying to curry favor with some investigators, which is a completely logical thing to do. Right. In the 14th Court of Appeals case here in Texas, there was a similar conditional that they hung their hat on to deny his right to a lawyer there. And basically, he had said, hey, I I still want to keep talking to you. I would just like my sister to get me an attorney. Well, in the context of interrogation, that's actually really a disingenuous thing to use as an excuse to take away his right to counsel because... In an interrogation situation, American detectives are trained to use something called the read technique. Nearly every detective in America has been trained in it. And one of the tactics in this is to develop a rapport with the defendant and convince them that if they're not guilty, then they have every incentive to keep talking and that shutting up and not talking would be indicative of guilt. So when he said to that detective, you know, I want to keep talking to you. I just want my sister to get me a lawyer. Well, what he's saying is, I'm not trying to tell you I'm guilty. I just think I kind of need to be protected here. And he was right. And that's the disingenuous part to me. We've gotten to the point where the judges and the, the cops are looking for little loopholes. And and if someone asks for a lawyer, if they're anywhere around it is is a conditional, then they're going to latch onto that and say, nope, not right now. Maybe if you ask later in the correct fashion. The person thinks they've already asked for one, and basically it's just not happening. And this is a pretty common recurring theme. Yeah, no, it's common, and it's tragic, really. It's it's a failure on the part of the courts to really take real-life circumstances into account. And the defendant, in the end, has really no other option but to roll over. <laughs> oh, that's the one. Next uh, risk assessments have come under fire from liberals because these instruments produced by private companies were found to generate racial disparities, even when race isn't one of the input factors. But the Harris County bail reform litigation envisions using risk assessments in lieu of money bail. So Scott, does this throw a wrench in the bail reform efforts? I certainly hope not. This is a vexed and difficult argument because there are absolutely situations where if a risk assessment has a racial disparity, it would be critical to the justice system to not implement it in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. If you're using predictive policing, for example, you still need to be able to require individualized probable cause to arrest somebody. You can't just say that my algorithm says that you're a criminal and so I'm, I'm going to arrest you. But in the context of pretrial detention, in the context of bail in particular, where we're talking about people who are not convicted of anything yet, but in fact are presumed innocent and are sitting in jail awaiting trial. I actually think that some of those concerns shouldn't be quite as prominent. In Harris County in particular, where this bail litigation is going on and where they have begun to use these risk assessments now, the alternative to the risk assessment are the magistrate judges. Well, what do the magistrate judges do? They deny personal bonds to everyone They simply say, okay, across the board, we're going to apply money bail to everyone. 
no one gets evaluated. No one gets a personal bond based on being Ooh. low risk or tiny, tiny percentages. Yeah, I don't think and, that they could say no one, right? That would not pass legal scrutiny. Well, you say it wouldn't pass legal scrutiny, and it didn't. The federal judge said that it was all unconstitutional because mm-hmm. the defendants would go one after the other yeah. in front of those magistrates, and they were simply all denied. So you're right. It doesn't pass legal scrutiny, and in fact, it did not. And that's how yeah. we got to where we yeah. are. And so, and so whenever you say, you know, are we going to use risk assessments and is this disparity going to create some problem, I think you always have to ask the question, compared to what? And if the outcome you're comparing it to was so much worse, well, maybe we can use the risk assessment and then try and improve it and validate it and, and find any sources of unnecessary bias as we go. But I'd hate to let the perfect be the enemy of the good and have lots and lots of people locked up simply because we're afraid that white folks might benefit a little more. I think this makes a lot of sense. I do think that it's not limited. The comparison of whether we use the risk assessments or not shouldn't be just limited to the status quo, though, right? Like, what are the other alternatives that are out there? Or what can we do in our use of risk assessments that would make their implementation more fair? I mean, one thing that's happening in Harris County that I think is important is that they're also providing counsel for the defendant. So there is someone there who's able to advocate for the, you know, the citizen accused and draw attention to factors that might not be borne out in the risk assessment, you know, ties to the community, the presence of family in the audience. Those are all things that should be considered when you're trying to figure out, is this defendant going to appear in court and is this defendant likely to commit another crime? Yeah, that's a really excellent point that, in fact, having counsel available at those bail hearings in addition to the risk assessment probably would have significant mitigating factors on some of the disparity problem. Because where the disparity comes from is that the instrument is not sophisticated and nuanced enough to drill down into every possible individual circumstance that an individual might bring with them when they come before the court. But that's your attorney's job, in fact, is to be able to convey that individual circumstance to the judge and to explain why that means you deserve extra consideration when it comes to your personal bond. So maybe that is the, the right approach, that layering that additional right to counsel, which you should have already had in the first place, on top of the risk assessments might help mitigate that over time. I think we can't know unless you implement it and test it. No, I think you're right. I just think that we need to remain skeptical of it, right? That, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point with our pretrial release system where we can say mission accomplished. We've figured out the perfect situation. And there are reasons, and I do think that defense attorneys in particular have have pointed this out that we should be worried about preventative detention that you know we are in a way punishing people for crimes that they haven't committed and we should be skeptical and scared of that and i think that you know provide the appropriate amount of respect for that i can agree with that and yet at the same time i also believe that preventative detention um, shouldn't be overused but the yeah. status quo is detaining people far beyond those even for whom preventative detention might be a question. And so on behalf of all those people who simply would not be in jail at all pre-trial under the risk assessment, and there's a lot of them, you know, I like to say, I just am worried that it allows the perfect to be the enemy of the good on this. Yeah, no, you're, you're probably right. 
Now it's time for a game segment we're calling Tea Leaf Reading, in which Scott and I attempt to predict the future, which means that we're probably going to be wrong. In this first rendition of the game, we're going to stack the deck by making predictions about future events we know will happen. In this case, the legislature's interim charges, which will be studied by standing committees in the Texas House and Senate. For listeners who aren't aware, the Texas legislature only meets for four and a half months every other year. And interim charges are topics that the state leadership designates for standing legislative committees to study when the legislature is not in session. Having your issue as an interim charge doesn't guarantee the legislature will pass your bill, but it is an opportunity to educate key committee members and staff, vet proposals and stakeholders, and run ideas up the flagpole that may take off unexpectedly when session rolls around. It's also an opportunity for the opposition to try and kill reform efforts before a bill is ever filed, and thus serves as an important trial run on issues designated for study. Let's start by discussing an interim charge from the House Corrections Committee that speaks to the topic of a game segment from our August podcast. Specifically, it's to evaluate current Texas criminal justice system policies and practices regarding 17 to 25-year-olds, specific to probation, parole, state jail confinement, and discharge from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice or county jail. They're supposed to review any gaps in services that may be causing this population to recidivate and make recommendations to improve the state's response to the needs of the population in order to lower revocation, rearrest, and reincarceration rates. So Scott, look into your crystal ball and tell our listeners what the committee might find and what they might discuss as they delve into this topic. Well, for starters, I'm just thrilled that they took this topic up. This is really a cutting edge issue nationally and something that is being considered all over and Texas has not really dove into this conversation before now. So it's exciting that they're doing so. You know, Texas has been mired in a debate over raising the age to from 17 to 18 for mm-hmm. um, when you can be charged as an adult. And, you know, definitely that's something that reformers have, have supported. But there are a lot of ways in which that is a debate about bringing Texas into the 20th century, yeah. not the 21st. In the 21st century, we're in an era where, you know, starting in the, the George Bush one presidency, we've had all this neuroscience research, you know, it was mm-hmm. going to be the decade of the brain in the <laughs> 90s, right? It was. And they invested all I don't this. remember that. <laughs> well, they, 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 they invested um, all this money in brain science research starting in the first Bush administration. And this has started to raise a lot of very interesting questions in the criminal justice realm, in particular about very young defendants. And we now know that young people's brains are actually not fully developed, especially the portions of their brains related to cognitive decision-making, until they're in their mid-20s. And that, in fact, people who are, say, 18 to 21, their brains may be more like people who are 15 or 16 than they are folks in their mid to late 20s. And so all of this new evidence from brain science has raised a lot of new questions about should we automatically just treat these very young people as adults? Do you just throw them directly in prison with all the hardened offenders who are, you know, have been doing this for longer? And, and you know, what are the issues around that? What are the alternatives to that? These 
issues are just being discussed for the first time. And Texas has been absent from these discussions until now. But in other states, people are struggling with them. We, we, we talked about that case in Kentucky a couple of months ago on the podcast where a judge was wrestling with these issues related to the death penalty. Massachusetts just last month raised their age of adult criminal culpability to 19 instead of 18. And so there's a lot more debate around this now, and I'm glad they're taking it on. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's an exciting opportunity too, in part because we're, we're t- I think this is an opportunity to examine whether some of the punishments for these defendants make sense, right? That if you're convicted of a crime as a young adult, you know, under the age of 25, the science is now showing that your capacity to sort of rehabilitate and resume a productive life is because your brain structure is similar to that of a juvenile is similar to that of a juvenile you know in other words it's it's great it's very high yeah. that the people who are who, who commit crimes during that age group have a very good chance of aging out of crime and going on to lead productive lives without becoming lifelong criminals. yeah so you know yeah so this is an opportunity you know short of cre- of you know extending the age of adult criminal responsibility like raising it further up to you know create special exemptions within the law such as like creating maybe mandatory parole or getting rid of collateral consequences for an offense for people in this age bracket so that they're able to re-enter society in a more effective and basically like a, a, a more prompt manner than they are now. Right. One of the Massachusetts um, reforms that they did was making it easier to get expunctions for crimes committed in, in, in these earlier periods. So it does seem like there have to be quite a few little tweaks that could be made that, that could accommodate this new science, this new understanding of, of what is really motivating and driving the mindset of these youth. Next, the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee has an interim charge to examine instances of prosecutorial misconduct and ineffective assistance of defense counsel. When this came out, the media focused mostly on the notion of the legislature confronting prosecutorial misconduct. But for defendants, the ineffective assistance piece is just as important, and there are some structural barriers for defendants to receive relief in those cases. So, Mandy, why don't you deal out a few tarot cards for us and see if you can predict what structural problems the committee might confront when it comes to ineffective assistance? Oh, God. Well, I think on on the front end, the committee, unfortunately, is going to have to confront just the underfunding of indigent defense in Texas. By and large, attorneys that represent indigent defendants in Texas are handling extraordinary caseloads, like several times the number of cases that they should be taking according to caseload studies that have been performed for decades at this point. And that does have real repercussions. If you aren't able to properly investigate your case, your client is more likely to plea to an offense when there isn't you know, a factual predicate for it, and you're less likely to present a case that adequately represents your client if and when you do go to trial and this deficit in spending is extraordinary it's somewhere it's upwards of 240 million dollars a year so there's that piece which i think will be difficult 
for the for the committee to come up with a solution that's cost neutral that will be able to be remedied in a year where you know I think everyone is anticipating that funds are going to be tight. Well, there is no cost neutral solution to this. Yeah. That's that's not what's going on. The whatever you do on ineffective assistance because we have underfunded energy and defense for so long, it's simply going to cost money. So that's one of the reasons I was interested in them having put that in with prosecutorial misconduct. Huh, well, are you really willing to address that? (laughs) Because that's, 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 we know what would be involved to really address it. And it's mostly more general revenue money. But there's also a situation where once ineffective assistance of counsel has occurred in your case, it's very difficult for defendants to actually ever get any relief on that. That's in part because it's almost impossible to bring this up on direct appeal. Typically, the, the lawyer doing your direct appeal is the same lawyer who did your trial. And so if there was ineffective assistance there, they're very unlikely to bring up their own shortcomings. And similarly, in direct appeal, they really can't get into extraneous factors outside the record. And so they're, they're sort of hamstrung. Mm-hmm. And yet direct appeal is the only time when you have an attorney. And so just like Mr. Iestas in the capital case that we're going to talk about here coming up, his trial attorneys were ineffective and didn't investigate at the sentencing phase the mitigating evidence in his capital case that that might have kept him off death row. But there was no lawyer available to investigate that until the habeas corpus post-conviction aspect of his case. And even then, he was struggling to get it, his, his investigation paid for. So talk to me a little about this structural situation where okay. you don't get an attorney during the period when you might be able to challenge ineffective assistance. Well, it's not just ineffective assistance, though. I want to say that, by and large, prosecutorial misconduct is not an issue that you're going to be able to raise on direct appeal either. So, you know, defendants in Texas and throughout the country, by and large, only have access to counsel on what they call the direct proceedings. So that's trial and then a first appeal that is limited to review of the trial record. So it's just creating errors of law that you can look at or identify from looking at the pleadings in the case and then the transcripts of the pretrial hearings and the trial itself. That is the scope of the inquiry. It's very limited. And, you know, when it comes to prosecutorial misconduct and ineffective assistance of counsel, in both cases, that really requires examination of facts outside the record. You know, you have to, in order to figure out what an attorney should have put on, you're going to have to consider the scope of the investigation, the greater investigation. And in determining whether a prosecutor should have disclosed certain evidence, that's going to require an examination of what that evidence was in the context of all of the information that was disclosed in the case. So in both cases, you're going to need a habeas lawyer because that habeas is the review where you get to have external fact finding. But like as you pointed out, you don't have a right to counsel in habeas cases unless you're on death row. So that excludes most inmates in Texas. Right. It's worth here giving a shout out to Judge Elsa Alcala on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, 
who raised all these issues in a in a dissent last year and actually her suggestion since the legislature is going to be looking for for suggestions she thought that the legislature should extend the right to counsel to habeas only to take care of this ineffective assistance category of cases because frankly this is such a broad category that it's really the area where they most frequently give habeas relief is mm-hmm. ineffective assistance. Yes. And so in the area where you're most likely to receive relief, you're the least likely to have a lawyer and be able to pursue relief. And so she'd suggested that the legislature actually pay for lawyers just like you do on direct appeal for that. And that seems like a pretty reasonable suggestion given that structural barrier. Now it's time for Death in Texas our recurring segment on capital punishment and the death penalty. We'll start with the Texas death penalty case recently heard by the U.S. Supreme Court at oral arguments. Then we'll talk about a weird case out of Dallas where eyewitness testimony was bolstered or maybe ultimately tarnished by hypnosis administered by the victim's police questioners. Let's get started. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a Texas case called Iestis v. Davis related to whether or not the defendant was entitled to funding to investigate an ineffective assistance claim as part of a habeas corpus writ in a death penalty case. So Mandy, tell us what are the implications of this case? I mean, this case is fundamentally about whether we're serious in guaranteeing access to justice for everyone regardless of their income level. But the implications here have to do with access to funding within the Fifth Circuit. So that's death row inmates in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. With Mr. Ayesis's case, there's a a federal statute entitles indigent persons facing the death penalty to investigative expert or other services that are reasonably necessary to the representation. However, the Fifth Circuit sort of deviates from the statutory test in determining whether to allocate resources, and it requires a demonstration of substantial need. And that's really where his case went awry, because you have to, as Lee Kowarski said in his oral argument, this test essentially requires that you establish at the front end that the outcome of the case would have been different if you had these resources. In order to get the resources. In order to get the resources. So it's a circular test if you really think about it. Right. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier on these ineffective assistance claims where these aren't really something you can raise on direct appeal for all intents and purposes. And mm-hmm. the first time you really have access to relief in these cases it will be on habeas. Mm-hmm. And yet you don't necessarily in non-capital cases even have an attorney on habeas in this case you do but the the habeas lawyers run able to get resources to investigate the claims so uh, yeah. so it goes back to the same situation where what do you do when you aren't even able to get to that issue until habeas and then you're not allowed to get to it then yeah and and here we're talking about ineffectiveness layered on top of ineffectiveness so In Mr. Aestes's trial, he was sentenced to death after a penalty phase that lasted less than half a day. His defense attorneys put on no witnesses and, you know, essentially made no case for mercy. However, you know, there's evidence that 
one, Mr. Ayestas suffered from a severe mental illness, that he had multiple head injuries, and also suffered from substance abuse. So these are all things that probably mitigate his culpability, but have not been investigated by his trial attorney. And then it wasn't investigated by his state habeas lawyers either. So really the first opportunity to have this looked at was on federal post-conviction. And the courts have denied him access to an investigator to talk to witnesses, but also an expert to evaluate his mental health. So when will the Supreme Court rule on this? I don't know. Probably sometime in the spring. Let me briefly ask you about Charles Flores' capital case. A witness identified Mr. Flores after being subjected to hypnosis, which the trial court at the time thought was a fine idea. Now the trial court has it back again on a habeas corpus writ. So Mandy, tell our listeners, what should they know about this case? So this is a Dallas case, which, as you said in your in your lead up, the main premise of the prosecution's case hung on an eyewitness identification. And this witness underwent hypnosis before she connected Mr. Flores to the crime. There's no DNA evidence. There's no fingerprint evidence connecting him. It's really her account. And it sort of evolved. <laughs> You're shaking your head. So, evolved or- is, is, is a very generous way <laughs> to, to frame that, right? Because she first said that a white man with long hair had committed the crime. And the evolved version is an Hispanic man with short hair, which was Mr. Flores, right? Yeah. So the issue right now, given given that discrepancy and post-hypnosis. post-hypnosis and everything we know is whether he received a fair trial ultimately in light of this testimony and given everything that we know about hypnosis and memory right now, that it's very likely that the integrity of her identification, you know, disintegrated over time and rather than being reinforced over oh, time. Yeah. Well, essentially and, the, the other thing that you didn't mention is that her identification of Mr. Flores in court happened a year after the hypnosis. So she'd been shown these pictures, his picture in these lineups, identifying him in the first place. Mm-hmm. She did not identify him after the hypnosis. And then a year later, after his picture has been in the, the news. TV news, it's been in the newspaper, she's seen it everywhere. And then she goes back into court and says, no, that's the guy. That That's a very squirrely identification anyway. You throw in the hypnosis and... It really is is a lot to hang a capital murder conviction on. Yeah, no, it's it's extremely questionable, and it's you know disappointing that this is such a recent case, and it's out of a large county with a sophisticated law enforcement system. So, well, the, were there any psychics used in the case? <laughs> or is there? Is, is, is it possible we can get tarot card readers to assist the Dallas PD in their in their investigations? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, not as far as I know, but who knows? Like anything's possible, apparently. I'll bet palm readers would be really useful. Helpful. Yeah. yeah, you know, well, they give you definitive answers, right? That's right. For, well, for y'all's clients in particular, you could check the lifeline, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I think for your capital clients, that's that'd be useful information yeah. to have. So yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. <laughs> It's, it's really good. So um, th- this case is still pending in front of the trial court. Closing arguments are December 4th. So we'll see what the district court recommends in terms of findings of fact and conclusions of law. So 
more to come. All right. What a crazy case. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready to hold up your end? I'll try to keep up. The Trump Jeff Sessions DOJ eliminated 70% of tables from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report. Is this a big deal? Yes, it's a big deal. The Uniform Crime Report is relied on by policymakers throughout the nation. So eliminating 70% of this report eliminates it. You know, the vast majority of the information we use. A new study found police body cams were doing little to change police behavior. What's the problem? Mainly it's that the laws implementing them aren't designed to use body cams for accountability. They're designed to use them to gather evidence against defendants. So in most states, including Texas, it's very hard to get access to the body cam footage. And so advocates aren't able to use it for holding police accountable. And the only way they're getting used is as evidence in criminal trials. And so everyone who thought, hey, this will be a great police accountability tool, it's all in the implementation. The devil is in the details. It is. All right, last one. A report from Nerd Wallet and the Texas Tribune found that Texas law allows rent-to-own furniture companies to use the threat of arrest to enforce payment. How is this different from an old-school debtor's prison? It's it, it's not. In fact, it's it's a, just a throwback to the you know 18th century. <laughs> this should be part of the civil system. If someone can't afford to pay, you should be able to recover it that way. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzillo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Goodbye, folks. Subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or YouTube, and we'll be back with more, hopefully better news next month. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. (laughs) 